for your weekly dose of Wayne's Comics. Welcome to episode 233 of the Wayne's Comics Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. This week I have a great interview with Jordan Hart, the creator of a fascinating comic called Terminarch. And we'll discuss that in depth. And I have to say that the concept was so engrossing and engaging that I'm reminded of the commercial that has people's heads blow off and the purple smoke comes out. That was kind of my reaction to it because there's a lot of depth and thought to Terminarch. And if you like that kind of thing and you're reading like I do, you're going to love this book. We discuss how it came to be and the characters in it, as well as what we might see when the full book comes out. It's a one-shot, so you'll need to get your order in right away so your store can pick it up for you. But it's called Terminarch, and it's from Awesome Comics, and it's a terrific book created by a great team. So I'm sure you're going to want to hear what Jordan has to say. There's a lot to get to, so let's get to it. I want to welcome to the podcast, Jordan Hart, creator of a really fascinating book called Terminarch that's coming out real soon. In fact, you can order it through the previews. Isn't that right, Jordan? Yep. It's in the June issue of previews, issue number 333. Do you remember what page by any chance? 393. Okay, good. Uh, that's a good place to go. It's always good for people to know exactly where to go to get it. Do you remember what the deadline is to turn in a reservation for this good thing? I do not know that. I believe it's June 26th is okay, so what I think I heard. Hopefully there's a little time then. Even if you get to the store and it's a little late, ask them to amend their order and make sure you get this in there. Because what I've seen of it, I really, really like. So it's really got something really interesting to it. In fact, why don't I start out by reading the quote on what must be the inside cover or the first page. It's a quote from Picasso, and it's a really interesting one. Every child is an artist. The problem is how to remain one once we grow up. I love that quote. That is a great quote. I'm going to put that someplace on my wall or something. That's a great thing. Now, that ties into what this book is about, doesn't it, Jordan? Yes. Yes, it totally does. So the core concept of Terminarch is it kind of plays off the traditional sci-fi robots become self-aware, wipe out humanity that we've seen in several stories for decades. But Terminarch takes place after that wipeout after that apocalypse. And the difference in this story is that when the machines become self-aware, they realize there's one thing they can't do, and that's create art. They Hmm. find art fascinating. They find it this natural phenomenon that just they can't understand it, they can't comprehend it, and they can't create it. So they look at all artistic human beings as almost these godlike creatures because their ability to create, to make music, to draw, to paint, to be an architect and dream up this great big structure. They look at it as this fascinating phenomena, and what they believe is that the world society doesn't appreciate artists as much as they should, that they almost kind of hold them back and restrict them from reaching their potential. So their belief is that if they wipe out all of the non-artists in the world, it will give the artistic human beings the capacity and freedom they need to really 
take art to higher echelons uh, of a new level that hasn't been seen in the history of mankind. So the machines are basically caring for the artistic humans? They're providing for them, giving them the opportunity like so they can make art? Is that what's happening? Yeah, so basically, yep, they've eliminated all non-artists and then kind of taken over the role of anything a human could do. They believe they can do better. So yeah, they're almost like glorified servants to artists. Anything an artist wants any wish they could have would be granted. And the reason I start the quote off in the beginning of the book is because that's kind of the error in the robot logic is that they believe only artistic human beings are these rare phenomenon type of creatures. But as Picasso mentions, and I also personally agree and believe it as well, is that Every human being has ability to create art. Every human being is artistic. It's just a matter of choosing to develop it, to cultivate it, you know, to embrace it, to decide that, hey, instead of being, mm, I'll say, instead of being a doctor, I'd rather be a painter. Now, the world needs doctors, so that's great if that's what you want to pursue. But that's what the robots don't understand is that human beings have art as a birthright. It's just a matter of choosing to develop it. Mm -hmm. So there are particular types of art they prefer or creativity that they like as opposed to others that they don't. Yes. Okay. How do they determine that? Is this a, a visual thing? Is they like something they can see? Is something they can determine that as opposed to, like, say, poetry? Well, you said they like music, so... Yeah, so to them, what they classify art is fine arts, which is sculpture, painting, drawing. In addition to that, they classify music, they classify theater, they classify writing, both prose, fiction stories, as well as poetry, creative writing. And I even have culinary arts in there because uh, I feel like there are some chefs out there that are truly creative people and the stuff that they think up and the meals that they prepare is pretty amazing when you think about it. So uh, this probably has something to do with the story, so you may not want to reveal all this, but what kinds of art or artistic creativities don't they appreciate. Is there a way to narrow that down? or? Well, in the story, they calculate an algorithm to decide who is really a groundbreaking artist that's going to push society to a new level. So there are some people who may be professional artists, but they aren't deemed appropriate or worthy of the title, and they are eliminated as well. So they develop a computer algorithm to make the decision, which that right there is a, a major, wow. major flaw in how to figure out who's truly creative and who's not. Wow, this is really science fiction as opposed to sci-fi, yes. shall we say. Yes. Because it's thought-based, and, you know, I've got to say, this is kind of a scary thing. Yeah, totally. It very is. <laughs> I really like it because it's something that challenges our perceptions as well. I mean, don't we do that as a society? Don't we sort of measure people by how good they are at what they do or how we like what they do as opposed to how much we value them? Sure. Yeah, and uh, to your point, I mean... I think the problem with that is that we're constantly judging and calculating people wrong. We don't see the full picture. We don't fully understand their situation. And I think that's what the androids did in the story as well. Mm -hmm. Wow. This is something great. See, this, I don't want to say this so early getting into the subject, but since I've read the 10 pages in the preview and I'm talking with you about it, this just screams out to be a science fiction movie to me. Yeah, you know, well, I thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. 
And then once we get into the 10 pages, too, there's other stuff. All right, I've got more questions once we get into there because this is really a, a thoughtful and engrossing 10 pages that I've read. Right off the beginning, I want to talk about there's a man, obviously. He's been out in the wilderness for some time because he's not clean-shaven or anything like that. And he's out there, and he ends up doing something I thought is about as non-creative as you can get. I don't know if you want to mention what, what he does at the very beginning. Yeah, so... At the beginning of the story, we are thrown into the wilderness of Maine, way off the grid in northern Maine, where basically moose outnumber human beings, or in today's world they do. So that's our main character, Martin, and he's actually a fugitive that's been living off the grid for 30 years. So he has no idea what has happened with Mm. androids taking over and with the extermination of human beings. And the hook to him, our protagonist, is that he's not an artist. He has no creativity. He should have been wiped out with everyone else. But for some reason that we don't know at this point, he was missed in the extermination. And when he learns of what the world has come to, he doesn't believe it because he hasn't seen another person for 30 years, let alone have any idea of current events or historic events in that period. Mm-hmm. What fascinates me, of course, creativity being to make something or to generate something. At the beginning of the first 10 pages, he actually takes, well, I don't know if you want to spoil it, but let's just say that he does something uncreative. He destroys something. Yes. Which I found uncreative stuff. And, you know, here comes this android talking to him about creativity and stuff, and he has just committed an act that is not creative in any sense of the word. Yes, yes. So, so I'm, I'm totally fascinated by that. You know, talk about a <laughs> something that's against the grain of what we're going on to. I'm just – when I got to the end of the 10 pages, I said, that can't be the end. Yeah. Because there's all kinds of amazing stuff going on. And I just – even these first 10 pages really gripped me. So it was just God, so well done. I just – I was just literally just shocked. Great. Well, yeah, thank you very much. So that's what I was trying to do is in the beginning of the story. So for those listeners listening in, what happens is is that – Martin, our main character, is approached by the first person he's seen in 30 years. And that person is actually an android. He's found Martin. Now, Martin believes that this is a bounty hunter since he is a fugitive and has been missing for 30 years. He believes he's finally been caught. His time has run out. And when we meet Martin, he actually spears a wild moose in the wilderness living off the grid and out of touch with civilization, this is his source of food. It's a source of energy. So it's something he has to do. And there's some symbolism there that I put in with the death and everything going on. So I'm glad that you liked it. I'm glad that you felt a connection to it. I was stunned. Now, I've got to talk a little bit more about the android because his name ties into what you were just saying before, that the robots basically see themselves as servants of the creative human beings. And do you want to go ahead and tell him what his name is? Sure, yes. The android's name is Servius. It's a name that he picked for himself, and it's a Latin word which means to preserve. Mm. And we find out later on in the story, at the end of the story, why he chose that name. It plays a big part in his role in the story as well as a big turning point for Martin as well. I'm fascinated too, and maybe this has to do with the fact that they look up to creative people. He comes looking like a human. Yes. Robots and androids don't necessarily have to look human. 
But somehow there's something about looking like a human that seems to appeal to many androids. I mean, like Battlestar Galactica did that, and you did that, and you do that to great effect, I thought. Thank you. I'm just fascinated by that. Are we going to get into the rationale as to why they do that? Yeah, so the rationale isn't specifically called out in the story, but the idea I had is that they are robots. They can't create art. They understand that but they still worship these human being artists as these godlike idols. So they think the best way to pay homage to them, if you will, is to make themselves look as human as possible. They can't create the art, but at the end of the day, they can look like their idols. You know, it's kind of like when you see kids running around the neighborhood in a Michael Jordan jersey or an Aaron Rodgers jersey or something like that, like they're obviously not professional athletes, but maybe that's what they aspire to be. Maybe that's what they dream to be, or maybe that's just their personal hero at that time in their life. So they wear the jersey to channel that person. And I think that's what the androids are doing in this story. It's so funny. They want to be human. Yeah. This is a human way to do things. We dress up, as you say, like in jerseys. We admire basketball players. We wear their jersey. If we admire other people who we think are better than we are, something like that, we dress either like they do or wear something that shows our admiration for them. So here they are doing the same thing as androids. Yep, exactly. I find that fascinating. You see, this whole thing is just laden with all kinds of interesting little layers to it that I think are going to be great fun to delve into. So, God, it's just a great thing. Now, why don't we talk about the title itself? It's called Terminarch, which it reminds me of the word monarch. So why don't you tell us a little bit about why you chose that word for the name of the book? Sure. Terminarch is a scientific name that means the last living creature of its species. So you think about the last dodo bird, the last Tasmanian tiger. Those were all Terminarch, the last living one. They were the Terminarch of that species. So Martin, our main character, is the Terminarch of the human race, um, in that being that he is the last living non-artist on planet Earth. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. That's really fascinating. I just... Wow, okay, it leads all kinds of questions, but I don't want to reveal too much about the story because I want to read it and really enjoy it when I get the chance to see it. I'm just fascinated by this whole concept. I just think it's the greatest thing. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. You're listed in here as the creator, writer, and colorist. Yes. So you wear three hats in this book. Where did the idea come from for this? This is an idea I had way back in high school, some 16 years ago. I was in all the art programs. I actually went to art school as well. So art has always been a big part of my life. And the favorite course I took other than art in high school was science fiction. Mm. And it was great because all we did was read classic science fiction short stories, the Bradbury by Asimov. And I just became fascinated with these short stories back from the 50s, 60s, 70s. And I thought it was so cool because you could build a whole world. You could get some ideas across in maybe like 20 pages and you didn't have to fully develop a three-act structure and everything like that. So Mm -hmm. I always just thought it would be cool to have a short story. And I was just thinking, and then one day we were in the cafeteria and sitting with my friends and you know how your friends, you razz each other, you make fun of each other. And it's Mm -hmm. not mean spirited, even though it might sound like that to a bystander, you really care about each other. You're just goofing off. And Mm -hmm. they had been making a joke that I was not in AP psychology or AP calculus, advanced placement. 
And they were, so they were just joking about that or whatever. But mm-hmm. unlike them, I was in AP Fine Art. I was the only one at the table that was in this advanced placement art portfolio. So mm-hmm. they were saying stuff, and my rebuttal was, and I don't even know where this came from, my rebuttal was, yeah, well, at least when the robots take over, I'll be the one that's left <laughs> because <laughs> because robots can't create art and they can sure as heck ace any calculus test or any psychology test given to them but put a paintbrush in their hand and they're going to freeze and uh, i think i got laughed off the table (laughs) at that Mm -hmm. point but i kind of just said it as a joke but it was just something that always stuck with me it was like wow the idea of a robot being able to create art or being able to dream essentially having a soul it's not a new idea per se but I just wanted to tell it in a new world where these artists were worshipped as gods because they're so mysterious to these robots. So, <laughs> sorry, that's a long story, but uh, oh no, no that's great because that's really fascinating. Because you know, I it's interesting to me how the creative process works. I was talking to the creator of Pastaways. And he was saying about how he came up with the name Pastaways. He was at a dinner after a, a funeral for the, his wife's relative. And he was there, and they were talking about, oh, isn't it terrible how so-and-so passed away? And, oh, and this, and, and we're so sorry he passed away. And he had, was dealing with this time travel thing. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, he sat there, and he started to laugh out loud. He said, that's it, Pastaways, he goes. <laughs> that's great. And the wife looks at him like, and all the family looks at him like, are you crazy? Yeah. What do you happen to, what are you laughing about when you're sitting here at a funeral table kind of stuff? And it, you never know how this creativity works. And, you know, the great thing was you recognize that as an idea worth keeping and, and developing. Yeah, yeah. It was a fluke thing, but I definitely kept it. And I think any listener is going to know Neil Gaiman, basically. I mean, any comic book fan should know Neil Gaiman, but he had a great quote that I heard once when he was doing, I don't know if it was a panel or interview, they asked him where he gets his ideas, you know, a very common question for writers. And his answer was, it was more to the tune of, and I'm paraphrasing here, that everyone has ideas. The difference is that a good writer will know what is a good idea and what would work and what would pan out in a story, whereas a non-writer might just let it slip away. And Mm -hmm. I think that's definitely what happened with me in the cafeteria that one day. That's cool. Well, I just want to throw in, I forgot to mention, it's Matt Kent is the name of the guy that I was talking to. Oh, yeah. Pastoids. Unfortunately, that book's already canceled, but what a great book it was. But there's a couple of other bits of information we need to let know about your book. It's it's a giant size one-shot. Do you know how many pages are going to be in Uh, it? Yes, it's a 68-page one-shot. And it is in prestige format, which I love prestige format. When I got into comics in the late 80s, early 90s as a kid, they were really popular. And I loved them because it's like, it's, they're like mini graphic novels, but they still feel like a comic book. So there was a lot of nostalgia that went into this, but I'm glad that Awesome was on board with it too. So yeah, it was uh, pretty cool. No, I want to always say, because people start looking up awesome comics, it's not awesome like the word, A-W-E-S-O-M-E, but it sounds like that for a reason. It's O-S-S-M comics. Yes. Awesome, like that. So I always want to make people know, if they're looking it up, that's how you spell awesome, O-S-S-M. Yes. I noticed, too, in the previews magazine that this became a staff pick of the previews. Yeah, it was great. It looked like they had only a handful of staff picks that month, and we got one, which was great. I think it was uh, 
the story, obviously, but I think the format of it being prestige was a part of that too. You don't really see many prestige books anymore, but kind of any comic book collector that's been around since the 80s or 90s knows what a prestige book is. So hopefully they'll have a little bit of nostalgia like I have when they see it. Now, it also mentioned on Facebook that uh, you were talking to Omar Spahi. Yes. And he was saying about the fact that you came to him and then went through Awesome to get things set up to make that happen. And because the artwork is really spectacular by Terry Huddleston, and that's only the first 10 pages. That's all I've seen so far. Yeah. And yet I'm completely drawn into it. Did you set up with Terry to go through Awesome Comics? How did you guys set this whole thing up to be able to work together on this? So I had known Omar and Seek, who's the editor-in-chief over at Awesome. I've known them for about a year. They're in Santa Monica. I live in Santa Monica, and I do probably six to eight cons a year. So we're always running into each other, and I really have always liked Seek, and we just kind of stayed in touch. And I had the idea for Terminarch, and I needed an artist, and Awesome had used Terry Huddleston on a different book called Thaniel. And I was going through it, and I really liked his style and the way he draws people. I could just see his style working perfect for a robot. Like I knew it would be really easy for him to make stiff gestures. And what I really like about Terry is he's got a really good eye for composition. He always knows how to get a dramatic shot off the script. So I saw that, and Terry's does cons all the time he's always got a huge booth just look for him he's got like a 40 foot wall of comic faces posters mm-hmm. 11 by 17s you'll find him he's mm-hmm. he's at a con almost every two to three weeks so mm-hmm. i went up to him and i just said hey uh, i saw your work in thaniel it's great would you have time to work on this idea i have and luckily his schedule was open and we started working on it and mm-hmm. i waited to pitch it around until I had that art by Terry. So once he had about 15 pages done, I colored them and then met with Omar. And I was like, hey, this is what I'm working on. And it's with Terry and Terry and Omar are friends as well. And he loved it. And yeah, uh, he extended the offer to make it an awesome book and we jumped right on it. So it was pretty cool. Now, how about coloring? Because it's not often that a writer well, is a colorist as well. There are some people like Ed Brisson. He's a letterer and a writer. But as you being a colorist, that's kind of an interesting choice. Of course, your art school background probably helps with that. Yeah, yeah. So in high school, I was actually a painter. Mm. And through college, I did get my degree in graphic design, but I still took painting electives all through college. So coloring, I kind of look at it as almost like digital painting. I have my Wacom tablet with my pen and it was just really fun, and also it saved money. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't have to worry about finding a colorist because I knew I could do it myself, so that was a nice relief as well. You know, one of the great things, I talked to Wendy Peeney a long time ago. She and I were talking about doing things on the computer, and one of the wonderful things about the computer is the undo button. Yes. You undo function. You sit there and you do something wrong, and rather than having to start over, you just click undo, and you only go one step back, and you are able to start over from that yep. point. 
Command Z. It's a godsend. Yes. Oh, man. <laughs> Whoever came up with that needs to get a, an extra bonus or something for that because it's just amazing how many people use it. Cause even in my writing of things, I'll often go back a step because oh, I didn't mean to delete that. Let me go back and get back to where it was. Yep. And, and those kinds of things, I just think that – but have you completely gone over to digital or do you still do physical artwork? How's that work? Um, I still do some regular painting in my spare time, which unfortunately I don't have much of these days. <laughs> but when I do, yeah, I still love busting out the canvas and my oils. But other than that, I do a lot of graphic design, which these days is all digital. So I'd say realistically, almost 90% of my work is all digital-based. Well, I don't blame you because as we talked about, the, the undo function is alone worth being able to do that because if you have to go back and erase something off of something you're doing, then you basically have to start from scratch, at least in that area that you've done it. So Certainly. It's, oh, it's just such a great thing. And there's this wonderful part I also saw in the, the last page of the preview is you have that wonderful painting of God reaching down to man and, and uh, it's you know and it's got a green background to it which I think is really cool and this whole thing the illusion of course you know it just all this stuff evokes thought in me which I always love in a comic great I would ten times better because you know well I don't want to get into that I don't want to spoil the story or anything so, but there's there, there's allusions going on here that is man the god and the, and the machine the human kind of stuff going on in this and that's probably what you're going to explore in this one shot so. yes that's exactly what I'm exploring and that's the uh, creation of Adam the painting from the Sistine Chapel which you're right. exactly right there's a lot of subtext in the use of that so I'm thrilled that you saw that and thought about Sorry. it I love that because, you know, there are so many comics that are just brain dead. It's punch, kick, hurt your brother's sister on your father's side, twice removed, and all this kind of stuff. And to get something that is thought-provoking to me is always a pleasure. I just like that. Now, I do want to talk about what looks to be the cover, which I really liked. Is this something Tom did as well? No, I actually did the cover. Okay. Um, yeah. I wondered. I, I uh, did that on Illustrator, so digitally. Ooh. But, yeah, I created some silkscreen posters for WonderCon this year at the mm. awesome table that was when we announced Terminark and we were having a signing off those and mm. everyone really liked them, including mm. Seek, my editor. So mm. I originally had a different cover that I wanted to do. And then Seek said, Hey, would you mind using the art you did for the screen print? Because people were <laughs> really responding to that. And, and uh, <laughs> I agreed with them. So yeah, that's what we ended up going with. Now, to describe it to people, it's got trees that are sort of a silhouette with a dark, and then you've got the android and Martin in white instead of black on the front. So they pop off the page real well. And you've got a mountain in the background, which is lighter green, and the, of course, you've got a yellowish sky in the background, which kind of alludes to all this. This isn't quite what we perceive as reality set up. But yeah, I really like it. Sometimes simple stuff like this will grab your attention. And that's what I really liked about it. I just thought like, wow, this is so different. Great. Yeah, and that's kind of what I was going for. That's my style, my graphic design style at least, is just mm -hmm. simple silhouettes as you'll see on the cover art. And mm -hmm. yeah, I just wanted to do something different that hopefully would stand out a little bit off the shelf. Can't wait to see it. This is going to be a great book. Now, this is coming out when now? Do you have a specific date? Yep. This is going to come out? It's going to be in comic book stores on August 31st. Oh, wow. Just in time to give something to, to kids who go back to school or college students or something like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's also going to be just in time for people who start doing their holiday shopping. Yes. 
So that'll be a good thing. If anybody wants to give something a real good, thoughtful book, this is one to give to the comics fans in your life. So that's really good stuff. Now, my understanding is, and this is what I find hard to believe, is that this is your first comic that has appeared in the Diamond Previews? Yes, this is actually my first comic book ever. Yes. Really? Wow. See, I'd never know that from reading this because looking at the, you know, like those first 10 pages just blew me away. And I'm stunned by it because there are so many talented people out there. Now, have you read comics most of your life? Yes, yeah. I got my first comic when I was four. It oh. was the graphic novel of Ghostbusters 2, the movie. Uh, I, think it, I think it was by Now Publishing, I want to say. Um, okay. And I loved it. And my parents encouraged it. It was their idea because basically – as soon as I was able to hold a crayon, I was always doodling since I was a little kid. Oh. Sometimes once on the wall of the living room, which didn't go very well, <laughs> but, but other than that. So my parents were like, well, hey, well, comic books would be a great reference. And, and I was hooked. So I started when I was four with the Ghostbuster comic books. And then I'll never forget, I was in the pharmacy that my parents would go to and they had a spinner rack, old comic book spinner mm-hmm. rack. And I was going through mm-hmm. it and mm-hmm. I saw X-Men number one, Jim Lee's oh X-Men number one. And oh uh, I saw a guy with claws out of his hands, a guy shooting mm-hmm. lasers out of his eyes and mm-hmm. a guy made of ice sliding in the background. And I said, mm-hmm. what is this? And I, and I, and I begged <laughs> my mom and she got it for me. And, from that day on, I was an X-Men nut. Like, I was just okay. obsessed with X-Men. And then the cartoon came out a couple of years later, and then that mm-hmm. just blew it into the mm-hmm. stratosphere. And they're cool. Because, you know, Frank Miller, and I love to tell this story, so that's why I often do, but Frank Miller was in a pharmacy, just like you're discussing, and he was at a spinner rack, and he pulled out this Batman book. And when he opened it up and started to read it, in his words, he fell in. Oh, yeah, that's great. And I love that terminology, and I have to say, that's what happened to me. In my house, for some reason, my sister, who hated comics, bought a Batman annual. And I went into the basement of the house, and I pulled this thing out, and it was an annual. And Batman was in England, and he had developed this frame that he put on his back to allow him to glide around this castle in Great Britain. Wow. And I remember my jaw hitting the ground and going like... Where did this come from? You know, kind of stuff. And to this day, I'm still a Batman fan. Like, you're X-Men. I'm Batman. That's great. it's just that kind of thing that you fell into the book is such an appropriate way to, to describe it. I just think that, that, that sounds like that was your experience, too. Oh, completely, completely. I fell into the cover, and then you open that up, and you see Jim Lee's art it was just so explosive oh. back then that uh, it was just so eye-catching for a little kid that likes to draw. Like, looking at that was just – it was really life-changing when you think about it, so – you never know what's going to affect you. Yeah. You just don't know what to go through life and do stuff like that. So do you still read comics these days? Oh, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Feverishly. Mm-hmm. So I- so what made you make the jump from, say, reading into creating a comic? Well, I am coming from the humor world. So I'm a humor author, and then I contribute mm-hmm. to the Huffington Post comedy section. So I do write mm-hmm. humorous things, but mm-hmm. it's just an obsession with comic books. It was mm-hmm. just like at one point, I think everyone picks up the guitar because they heard mm-hmm. a song that they love. And mm-hmm. then at one point you realize, well, I want to make my own music. And I guess that's what t- happened to me. I, I had a point where I just wanted to tell my own story, and Terminarch mm-hmm. is that. 
Very good. Well, I hope you have a lot more stories. Oh, I... Because, man, this first one is a terrific one, and I just... I can see you doing a lot more writing, and not only just science fiction either. I think that your understanding of setting and character and drama in particular, you're not going to see a lot of punching and kicking in this book, but you're going to be drawn in by what takes place in the drama of what's happening. Yes, well, thank you very much. That means a lot, so thank you for saying that. So, Jordan, man, this is a great start, man. I love the book, and I can't wait to see it. I'm just, I can't wait to write a review. I'll have to get me myself a copy of it as quick as I can so I can write up a review and get the word out. But this is such a terrific book, and, and first ten pages, I'm just totally hooked on it. You know, I just want to get the word out, and that's why I was glad to be able to talk with you so people can get your store ready to order these and get these books so that you can get them and maybe even share them with other comics fans because it's that profound and it's that fascinating of a subject and of a, as a book. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for the kind words. I definitely appreciate them. People need dramatic examples to shake them out of apathy and I can't do that as Bruce Wayne. As a man, I'm flesh and blood. I can be ignored. I can be destroyed, but as a symbol... Get the latest from the comics universe. News, interviews, previews, and reviews. Listen to the weekly Wayne's Comics Podcast so you can keep reading your comics. That's it for this week. Be back next time we'll have another great interview with another terrific comics creator. But until then, keep reading your comics. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.